Hey, everybody, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick announcement to share with you. In May, my College to Career Academy will hold a series of live weekend boot camps to help graduating seniors as well as juniors who are confused about what jobs and careers they might want to pursue when they graduate. So imagine going from confused to confident with at least three different career options you'd be psyched to explore by the end of day one of the boot camp, and then learning the tools, tactics, and the strategies to find those jobs by the end of day two. The boot camp is live, and it's led by me over Zoom, and you can learn more about it at College to Career Academy. That's college, the number two, career dot academy. Or you can just look me up on LinkedIn and check out the featured section of my LinkedIn page. I can't imagine a better graduation gift for the college students in your life. Thanks so much for listening, and I know you're going to enjoy my next incredible guest. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work as a clinical psychologist helping people overcome, whether it's intense emotional or psychological difficulties, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has been helping hundreds of people do just that over the last decade. But before I introduce you to Michael Dickinson, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that features career advice, insights, and inspiration that you likely won't find anywhere else. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my macchiato-drinking mental health lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Michael Dickinson, a clinical psychologist for the last 10 years. Michael's clients come to him for help with everything from deep depression, anxiety, personality disorders, obsessions, intense fear, jealousy, among many other personal challenges. His training has included work in foster care, corporate work, as well as in hospitals and now in private practice. He is passionate about helping people learn about the value that therapy can have in helping them untangle dysfunctional behaviors that are undermining their quality of life, as well as helping people address their mental wellness challenges. But because his therapy sessions are private and confidential, he can't talk about his patients' personal journeys and stories, but he can draw from them to write his own stories. And that's exactly what he's been doing for the last several years. He started writing fictional stories about people who needed help because of depression, anxiety, panic attacks, and a whole bunch of other things. And they're called clinical tales. He's written dozens upon dozens of them to date. And every week, 
They're read by thousands of people. We are going to include a link to them in show notes so you can read them either in Portuguese or in English. Michael, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go in Lisbon? I am indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is my pleasure. And let's both take a sip of our coffee. What type of coffee do you like? Many different ones, mostly espresso, Portuguese espresso. It's a short, very black coffee. Nice. Yes, I'm all for very concentrated hits of caffeine myself. And I would love for us to kick off our conversation today, Michael, with a high level overview of something else that's very concentrated, and that is the different types of mental health practitioners that exist because they really run the gamut. Who are they? I know, obviously, there are the clinical psychologists like you, but what are the other sort of shapes and sizes of mental health practitioners? Um, well, where do we where do we start? There really are quite a few. So, at least in Portugal, if if you've got the basic degree as a clinical psychologist, you can then become a specialist as a psychotherapist, which is another five years of studying, or even become a psychoanalyst. But that can go on for considerably longer. Then you've got um, cognitive cognitive behavioral psychologists, uh, also psychotherapists. Those would be your averagely referred to as short-term psychologists, people who will focus more on a symptom, a short-term resolution of an issue. It can go on for six sessions, eight sessions, 12 sessions. What I do is more of a psychodynamic approach. It can go on for just a few short months. It can go on for several years. It's somewhat flexible according to, to the situation. You've also got educational psychologists, the psychologists who go into schools to just basically be available to, to deal with whatever comes along. It's not a rigid setting. Uh, you have community psychologists, people who will then form teams and go into certain communities to establish what needs are there, how, how to go about it. And then unfortunately, there is a mix-up these days that, that has been happening more and more, which is coaching. A lot of people, a lot of coaches uh, will sell themselves off as being mental health practitioners. And they're, they're just not. It's two different things. A coach is somebody who trains you. This is where the word comes from. And so if you want to train to achieve a certain goal, that's, that's great. You, you get a coach, you get somebody who's good in that field. Uh, you want to learn to invest, you want to learn to, to do sports, you want to do something like that. Great, get a coach. But somewhere along the line, the idea of a life coach came along. And the problem here is that I'm not saying you won't get good practitioners in this field, but there is no centralized degree in this field. You can have folks who studied for three weekends, six months, others maybe a few years, but it's nothing in comparison to five years for a basic course and then another several years for a specialization from somebody else. And unfortunately, when you go on social media looking for reference to, to mental health, you'll find 10 coaches for every one tackle. And they all sound the same to somebody who's not in the field. But then when you start digging into it, you realize, yeah, it's not quite. And as a rule of thumb, if you want to know what to look for as an alarm bell, if you're following somebody who's advertising themselves as a mental health practitioner, and all they do is say, in my personal case, this and this happens. So now I teach people according to this one experience I had. Red light, huge, huge, massive red light. Stay away. So what do you do as a clinical okay. psychologist, Michael? Yes, I was getting a bit sidetracked there. What I do, so 
it's a bit difficult to put into precise description, but uh, let's take it from the top. So I'll have somebody come to me for whatever issue, anxieties, depressions, and etc. And I'll first help them to just tell their story, just tell how they got to where they are. And this will be the, my first three sessions, just listening to a person tell their story. And sometimes they'll tell, okay, this, this, and that happened, that's it. Okay, that's the first draft. Now let's go to the second draft and the third draft and the fourth draft and have the person tell the story with as much detail as possible to just understand what led to what. And then while they're telling the story, I'll help them pinpoint some key events that are hiding in plain sight just to see how they feel about that, if it makes sense to connect the dots in this particular way. And that is just the starting point. That is where the person will start to think, oh, hang on, there might be a different way of looking at this. This might not be as straightforward as I thought. Maybe that particular trauma I had as a kid doesn't lead as directly to this problem as I thought it did. Maybe it was all the stuff that was happening around that that's more important or whatever else. So what I do is, okay, so from my side, what I'm seeing is person tells me the story, how they tell it, what they're telling, the specific symptoms that they're going through and particular way in which they experience those symptoms will then put me in a frame mind of identifying the, the psychopathology, whether it's this type of personality, whether it's a high, high functioning, low functioning medium, and whether it's more histrionic, whether it's more neurotic, whether... So that, that's the theoretical side. That's where I'll quickly place the person in my own understanding. But this isn't something I'll feed back because I'm not interested in having somebody get stuck to a label, get stuck to the idea that they might be borderline, they might be bipolar, they might be whatever. It doesn't matter. They might be that now, but I want them to be something else in the future. So let's just forget about labels. So that's what I do. While they're telling the story, I'm mapping. I'm mapping to understand how they fit into the general outlines of a psychopathology. And then I start breaking it down because nobody is rigidly this psychopathology or that one. Everybody is a bit of a mix of all of them. And my task is to start understanding which particular ones connect and where and which one which ones are causing them pain? Because you might have somebody who has, for example, OCD, but they're very happy about it because it works great. They're in banking. Yay. I've got to touch that one. Leave it alone. They're happy with it. I want to find the ones that are causing pain and why they're causing pain, how they were constructed. Who were they constructed in reference to? Was it to regarding a complicated mother, a complicated father, a complicated brother? And this is what I do. I look for the patterns. I try to find the patterns that connect all of these dots and then break it down into the most simple language possible to then ask the person specific questions to get them to start thinking about particular aspects. There is no point at all in taking this mass of information, processing it, and then just returning it to the person like, okay, this is your diagnosis. This is, this is what I've mapped out. You probably won't understand 90% of what I've just said, but hey, be happy. That wouldn't help anybody. So as I hear your two small children in the background, your one-year-old and your three-year-old, it's making me think, Michael, about our childhoods. Mm -hmm. And what percentage of patients you see have issues that go back to their childhoods? 99%. It's impossible to extricate the two. It might not be that there was an issue in the childhood. But the way the childhood was formulated was what made them vulnerable to whatever experiences or lack of experiences of that matter that came along later in adolescence or even adult years. Whenever somebody comes along and says, oh, I have a fantastic relationship with my parents. Okay, what do you call fantastic? And normally it's not quite as cheery as they'd like to present it. If you think about it, if you think about your own life, or if anybody thinks about their own life, is 
the relationship with father or mother perfect. It's not possible. It's just not possible in human nature to have a perfect relationship, to have one in which everything is fine. So if you meet somebody who says, no, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. What are you hiding? What's, what's too painful to talk about? So yeah, 99% of everything will tie into childhood. Why did you want to get into this field? That is a bit of a, a funny story. I started by studying chemical engineering now straight out of high school. I went into that because I had the scores for it. There was a university and I wanted to move to the city and uh, just go to university. And uh, it was a massive failure. I was absolutely not cut out for studying chemical engineering. I had to just stop and take a few months, get a job and rethink everything. And while doing that, I just started to, to, to wonder, well, what could I study? And somehow the idea of psychology popped into mind and it made perfect sense. It connected with all of the things that I enjoyed doing. It connected to to socializing, it connected to understanding people, it connected to literature, it connected to basically the question is why I didn't go there in the first place. So yeah, that wasn't a, a lifelong dream, but when I realized that that's what I wanted to do, I haven't looked back since. And that was in 2005. Fantastic. So can you take us into a typical day for you now mm -hmm. during the coronavirus? We're doing this interview in early February of 2021. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you see most, if not all of your patients virtually. You were telling us in the Espresso Shots interview that you have patients now all over the world since yes, the coronavirus. It became much more mainstream for people to reach out for, for help, mental health and all these reasons. And one thing has led to another, and I spent more time on social media. Then somewhere along the line, I also started working for a company that uh, works with many people abroad. And between one and the other, yes, people from all, all around the world. Sometimes I have to go to my schedule and uh, check my notes to see where, it, where exactly it is that this person is that I'm talking to. Because you, you, you log on the video and there's a person in their bedroom. Okay, hang on, let me check the notes. What, what country, what continent, what time zone? Okay, there we go. So what is a day like for you during the coronavirus? Well, during this particular lockdown, it will be waking up with my youngest son because he never sleeps very, very long in the morning. He'll always wake up for one reason or another. I'll get up with him, do breakfast, wake for everybody else to get up, walk the dogs, to hopefully take the kids out as well to get some fresh air. And then it will be either me or my wife starting the uh, sessions because she's also a practitioner and then while one of us is working seeing patients the other one will play with the kids and sometimes we one or two sessions in and swap but can sometimes be a full day and so it's it's kind of crazy but at the same time time just flies by whereas when you're hitting the books when you're still in university you keep hearing about how as a therapist you're not supposed to have an identity it's supposed to be as much of a blank slate as possible so people can project whatever onto you so very neutral sort of office and they know nothing about your life ideally and etc that has all gone right out the window with, with the coronavirus people everybody who i talk to will at some point realize that i have kids running around the house they will often have one of my dogs jump up onto my lap because the one of them really loves to say hi to whoever it is that i'm talking to in the video and so it's something i just take in my stride and uh, sometimes might even be part of uh, the odd session where somebody will say oh, i'm so bored you at least have kids to go and play with well yeah that's <laughs> kind of how you could look at it but yes so then I'll have my sessions, then clock out and go straight into to playing with kids and dealing with whatever it is that they're going through. And if the weather's permitting, take everybody for another walk. And then it's time for, for dinner and hopefully peaceful night. Like that, the weeks just rocket by. So for those who haven't had 
a therapy session and I've been in therapy since 2008. So actually it's 13 years now because I believe I started in January of 2008 and have found it to be really insightful and Mm -hmm. very helpful to me personally. But for those who haven't had therapy, can you take us into the flow of a session? What is it like? What, what is the experience like for, for you, Michael? Mm. Not easy to, to generalize because each, each person will have a very unique experience. I'll, I've talked to some people in which the silences will stretch to almost the entire session because it's just very difficult to talk about anything. And I've spoken to people who talked so much. So in the first session, they didn't even pause to, to let me talk and left feeling like they hadn't had any help at all. So it varies tremendously. But what would a person typically expect from at least me to first to get an idea of where they are now and how they got here? What I aim to do is that people can find themselves talking about very complex issues by answering very, very simple questions. So it's It'll be like a very in-depth conversation with an old friend. That's what I hope. With the difference that this old friend knows nothing about them and has absolutely no personal opinion that will in any way impact their lives. And as time goes by, as uh, people learn to trust me, it's sometimes very funny. We'll just clock out from work because now everybody's in video sessions. They'll clock out from a meeting and just start with me. And sometimes they'll go, you can just see their face changing right in the first few seconds. They'll be like in business mode. And the next month, they're like, oh my. And just a, a line of swearing that nonstop, just getting it all out and saying, everything is absolutely awful. Everything's gone terrible right now, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, what's happening? Is something actually going bad or is it your boss who's, uh, who's annoying you? Then they'll take a moment to, to, to breathe and then whatever has to roll out of the conversation will roll. So a typical session, questions and answers, and then the rest really depends on what comes from the inside. I've had people who I ask, well, how are you doing? And they burst out in tears. So that really will depend on whoever, whoever comes to, to look for help. I've noticed in my own therapy, Michael, and I've worked with mm-hmm. a couple of therapists over the years, they haven't said Andrea, you're repeating a pattern Mm -hmm. from when you were a child. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's as if they're holding up a mirror Mm -hmm. and eventually one day the light bulb goes off. Is that a typical style for therapists? Well, each person will find their own style and what makes the most sense according to their academic background. But yes, ideally, it's not about me pointing out to people, hey, look, this is happening. Because if I tell you, if you were my patient, oh, you're doing this. And you might not like that. So you might start counter arguing. So that's useless. The idea would be more like, oh, this happened. Yeah. And that happened when you were seven, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, what do you think about that? Be something more along those lines. Anything that could help the person to make the connection themselves. It should be more subtle than this example I've just given you. But the idea will always be to get the person to think, to get there by themselves. Because if you try to force feed somebody answers, one, they might accept it. And that's going to be bad for them because they didn't construct any thought about it. And they just submitted to my opinion. And two, they might just reject it and we're back to square one. You wrote a popular LinkedIn post about why you think people should explore seeing a therapist, Michael, when there are so many other quote unquote tools out there to help us, whether it's exercise or motivational books, 
healthy eating, meditation. You said there are really no magic steps. Why a therapist and not the rest of those tools? The answer is very simple because we are human. And as human beings, we are a social species. Everything we are as individuals came from relationships. It came from relationship to a mother or a mother figure or a father or a father figure. If the very, very rare cases in history in which we've seen individuals raised by wolves and things like that, they were completely dysfunctional. They were not fit for a social interaction in any way. So if everything that's important that makes us who we are came through socialization, this is the very reason why we should look for help within a social relationship, within a therapeutic relationship. Often it will be the case that the relationship itself is first more important and only secondly important what's being said. The existence of somebody in your life who is completely judgment-free and just there to support you in whatever it is that you have to say can be incredibly powerful. What's the difference between this and self-help books and meditation and all that? Those other ones are done by yourself. You can meditate and imagine that you win the lottery or whatever, etc. And this is very comfortable. This is that's great. It's nice to have a foot rub. But what's that going to do towards helping you build a new understanding on something you've already spent so much time thinking? Hmm. And what's the difference, in your opinion, between talking with a therapist, psychologist versus your best friend or a family member? Be it a, a best friend or a family member, they're always too close to the trees to see, too close to the forest to see the trees. They will always have an opinion on what you're going through. There will always be somebody in your life. And in regards to that, you will want to, even if subconsciously, hold back from sharing certain informations. You might have something absolutely horrible you're going through and you don't want to share it with a family member because you don't want them to be worried about you or things of the sort. And even a best friend, you might not want to, to share everything because it might overburden the relationship as well. Also, these people, as well-intended as they are, they might not have uh, the right skill set to help you see what's happening. So that would be the, the major difference. Why did you start writing your fictional stories, the clinical tales, two years ago? Who is the audience for those stories and what do you hope they get out of them, Michael? Well, at present, they're still mostly in Portuguese because I started writing them for, for a Portuguese audience and I still haven't gotten around to translating the site to English. What happened was in 2018, I had been working for a company, a clinic, and it got to the point where well, it wasn't working out. So I stopped working there. And in Portugal, when you break a long-term contract, you're given a number of, of months in which you don't necessarily have to start immediately working. And at that point, I had a very simple choice. I would either look for, for a job and whatever I'd earn would then go to pay daycare. Or I would stay in this position, and uh, because of the agreements we have here, daycare would be very much close to free. And I figured, okay, I have these few months, I can either go and get a full-time job and be away from my daughter, or I can stay home with her and spend as much time as I can with her in these, uh, these first few months. And hey, let's just give it a go. Let's try and uh, build something new. So at the time, I had some colleagues who said, oh, put up a Facebook page. Oh, do this, do that. And some random posts about the five ways to deal with anxiety and uh, those mainstream sort of posts. And I thought, okay, well, let's, 
just create a Facebook page. And then I was uh, stuck with the dilemma of, well, what should I write about? And I figured, what is that I like about this? I like the stories. I like the, the way in which unbelievably complex issues are sometimes played out in apparently very simple situations. And I think to myself, if more people could read the, the, the clinical uh, reports that I had access to, more people would then look for help. But obviously, there's no way I could share this. So then I figured, okay, well, let's uh, let's just break it down. Let's make a simple story about somebody who started getting depressed because there is a, a side of depression that is very appealing. And I wrote that story and boom, it had a huge amount of reactions on Facebook and uh, stuck to that for a while and then eventually got a method going, writing one once a week. And as time went by, I started doing it on LinkedIn. And then at one point I figured, hey, let's just do it in English and see if uh, more people are, are interested. And yeah, between the stories and uh, other posts and suddenly people from all over uh, contacting me. The other month, there was a, a film director from Asia who was talk, talking to me. Ah, I liked your story and stuff. Okay, well, that's, that's amazing. Not, not in the sense that he wanted to make a movie, but it's just, wow, this is got people from the other side of the world saying I like your stories. And then after the first confinement finished, I happened to bump into odd friend here and then said oh look i've been reading your stories they, they really helped me pass the time while, while i was in confinement they helped me understand a few things and i spoke to a few more other people and they said oh does that really help me understand that one thing i was going through so I was like, okay well this is all added bonus i was just writing because i enjoyed it so that's how it started and although i've been uh, away from the writing board for for a couple of months now i do intend to get back to it as soon as possible and who is my audience everyone Everyone who wants to, to stop for two minutes and read a story, because I always try to make them two minutes long, and to just understand that even very complicated situations, when they're broken down, they make a lot more sense than they do at first glance. And of course, if they make more sense, there's more help available to people. It's easier to understand that there is a way out, because that's one of the major difficulties that people have when they first look for help. They think it's impossible to get out from where they are. And it's not. It's not, absolutely. It's always possible to get out. Michael, I well, I can say personally, I've read a bunch of them and mm -hmm. they had, for whatever reason, I maybe because I was looking at it on Google, they allowed me to read it in Portuguese or in English. I choose English oh, because I, I don't. No idea. Yes. Yes. So oh, I, I read uh, a whole bunch and I can say from my armchair psychologist perspective, for sure, one of the common threads that I saw was that we get emotionally stuck or mm -hmm. we repeat negative patterns from our childhood. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? It is very fair. So I know we don't have much time left. I hope perhaps we could just zip through a few questions here. Mm -hmm. So you graduated in 2011 mm -hmm. with your graduate degree in clinical psychology, a master's in clinical psychology from ISPA. Is that correct? Yes. Institute Superior Psychology Applicable. And is that the university of or? It, uh, it's one of the reference universities for psychology in Lisbon and Portugal. Excellent. And did you know what you were going to do when you graduated? Because you went directly from your undergraduate studies into graduate school. Mm -hmm. And yes. did you know what your next step was going to be when you graduated? I had no idea what the next step would be. The only thing I knew is that I 
absolutely wanted to be a clinical psychologist doing what I do now. And I understood that it would probably take a while to get to that point, but it was exactly what I wanted to do. And so what I did when I first graduated was I hooked up with a friend of mine and we created a project uh, in which we would uh, contact companies with average sized work teams and we would pose an intervention in which we would do workshops with the team to promote a better understanding of how mental health interfered with the workplace. And this was in 2012, so at the height of when the economic crisis hit Portugal. So unemployment was sky high, everything was very complicated. So we knew that people were going through a rough time and they needed support. And also that they would very, they'd be very unlikely to pay for it themselves. So that's why we went to the companies and proposed the companies would pay for, for the help for the, their workers. And it was fun setting up this project. It was a lot of work. We contacted dozens, maybe even a couple of hundred companies. And at the end of this, we worked with three. It was a very rewarding experience in the sense that we learned a lot about how to go about this, how to, to establish contacts, how to, what people would look for. Because at university, you're taught the very academic side of things. This is what you got to do. The person comes to you, you do your job and that's fine. Even possibly a bit cold. And in the real world, you have to kind of woo people. You have to kind of invite them into a space. And later, you can go into the hard stuff, but you can't just kick off with a certain clinical edge to it. And so that's what we did. We created that project. Was it a, a big success? Kept us going for a couple of years, but it was a tremendous experience because from then onwards, job interviews, teamwork and stuff like that, that was all much easier. And then I had to do some jobs in and out of the field, as one does when uh, starting off. But the... The amazing day was when I had just gotten back from uh, from my honeymoon and I was lounging on the couch, covering from a 30-hour jet lag, wondering what on earth I was going to do because I didn't quite feel like going back to the job I had at the time. And suddenly I got a call from one of the dozens of places that I've been applying to saying, and this was a Thursday, and I was saying, oh, we'd like to interview on, you on Monday to, to come and work for us. I said, well, look, I'm, I'm just back from my honeymoon, so you can interview me tomorrow. <laughs> They're like, what? Yes, yes, you want to interview me tomorrow because like that, I don't have to miss work. It's all easy for you. Where are you? I can get to you very quickly. And that's exactly what I did. And it was for a job in foster care for children who, children and teenagers who have to be removed from the family for legal reasons. And I stayed there for two years. It was incredible. It went from an internship to a job to a coordinator role. And I can say it was uh, one of the most uh, life-changing experiences professionally because there's just no room for for sitting back and studying what's happening. You just have to really get in there. You have to, it's all about the relationship you establish with the kids and you have to be true to yourself and true to them. I remember there was this one moment where I was about to lose my temper and one of the, the girls who was there with her sister kind of heavy breathed and said, what have we done now? And in, in this state of height of irritation, I said, you've done nothing wrong. I am just exhausted. It is 35 degrees outside Celsius, so it was very hot for summertime. And I have to take in an, another one of these food orders for the house. I have to do this and that and that. So you have done absolutely nothing wrong. I'm just really tired and furious about everything that's happening. And they looked at me and they smiled and then the, they just kept on playing. So this for me was another incredible moment because they knew that my anger had nothing to do with them. I was just irritated about work issues and they couldn't continue trusting me. And they stayed right there next to me playing. So that was one of the things I learned to be completely sincere in a relationship and sincere about your intentions as well. Obviously I had no intention whatsoever to be unpleasant to them, but I was at the, the end of my rope on that particular day. So I think there's a so technical way of putting that. It's called shit happens. Yes, exactly. The shit moved fanwards. 
Exactly. Exactly. Michael, what advice do you have for our young listeners, those who want to become psychologists or think they may want to become psychologists about how to build their career in a way that works for them to find a niche that resonates with them? Well, first of all, don't try and do it first time around. Get some other work experience first work somehow in this field for others, get some sort of experience under your belt and to absolutely stay away from the pitfalls. And these pitfalls are in social media doing the, the easy sells, the things that will share quickly that a lot of people will react to the, the five ways to cure depression, the, the three steps to happiness, the why the secret really makes sense. Stay away from that. Nonsense. Be true to what you've learned in your profession until you can Talk about it in a way that is simple and accessible to everyone. If you try to do it the other way around, go first to the, to the easy and very likable content, you might get lost and you might forget what it is that you're trying to do. Oh, fantastic advice. Two final questions for you. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe you fell down, maybe you failed in some way. But the most important thing here, Michael, is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned through the experience. Mm. Well, there would be two major moments. One would be when it came with that colleague of mine when we created the project, it came to the point where we realized this isn't going to work. It's been too long since we've had a client. It's been too many bills piling up. We have to drop this. We have to find standard, easy jobs. And at the time we then went to work for a call center, that was very, very tough to say, this isn't going to happen. And the learning point there is to understand that a failure is only a failure if you allow it to remain that way. If you choose to see it as a stopping point, as something that just needs to be done in the meantime, it can be easier. So if something doesn't go well at one point, it doesn't mean you have to rethink everything. It just means that for a time, don't do it. And another very difficult time for me was when I worked for a company in mental health and their approach was, I just didn't, it just didn't work for me because they went about it in a very commercial way. And well, it just, let's just say it wasn't, it didn't work for me. Your values and, weren't aligned. Yes, exactly. And luckily it got to a point where it worked out and I managed to leave. But if a job is in this field and yet you can't sleep at night, Think about it. Just because your job title matches your university degree doesn't mean it's necessarily right. If you can't sleep at night, if it's driving you crazy, if everything feels wrong, if you wake up in the morning hating what you're going to do, it might not be this field, it might be where you're working, but allow yourself to say this isn't going to work out. That would be the one thing that I've uh, learned from that experience. Thank you so much for sharing. Final question. Yes. If you could go back to university and do it all over again, but based mm -hmm. on the wisdom you have now, mm -hmm. what advice would you give yourself? I'd say stress a lot less. Just, just enjoy university and obviously get the work done, do the studies, do all that, and just relax. Um, enjoy it while you can because the time for insecurity comes afterwards. While you're in university, you've got a very clear-cut mission. Stick to that. I love it. In fact, what I tell the young people that I coach and what I write about on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. which P.S. is how Michael and I met, exactly. is very much that. 
about not stressing, especially as they get ready to graduate. And if they are really often sort of incapacitated because they feel that they are making a decision about their career that's going to affect the rest of their lives, you know, where they're going to work. And I say, absolutely not. Just think about what you want to do for that first year. What what do you want to try? It's like mm-hmm. Goldilocks and the Three Bears with the porridge. You're trying different porridge because the way that our careers unfold is by doing, by experiencing. And then life happens, both the good and the coronavirus type things. Yes. It happens. So just go with the flow, pick something that interests you and try not to stress so much. Michael, I want to thank you so much for not stressing about the Time for (laughs) Coffee interview, but most importantly, for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. This was so interesting, so enjoyable. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Andrew, for this invitation. It was a true pleasure to talk about my experiences and you are a wonderfully friendly host. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.